in my in my experience, when you get when you really get in the zone and you're writing dialogue, it's you're just the typist at that point. The characters are doing the speaking for you. And I guess from what you've explained at that point, that's that's almost purely creative and not imaginative. Is that right? Uh, no. No. Um... <laughs> So let me introduce you with your long resume. I've actually shortened it a little bit just by words whittled here and there. So still, you probably have time to go out and grab a sandwich or something because your background, <laughs> your background, your all your accomplishments, achievements, and so forth. But I think most of this stuff is really interesting and very important. Jim Davies, uh, Dr. Jim Davies is a professor in the Institute of Cognitive Science at Carleton University, uh, director of the Science of Imagination Laboratory. He explores processes of visualization in humans and machines and specializes in artificial intelligence, analogy, problem solving, and the psychology of art, religion, and creativity. His work has shown how people use visual thinking to solve problems and how they visualize imagined situations and worlds. He's written three books. The latest is called Imagination, the Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. And I'm only about halfway through the introduction, but I've got the rest of it coming up a little bit later because there are some questions I want to ask you about that stuff. Sure. <laughs> I'm delighted to talk to you. I've, I've uh, looked at your looked at all your stuff online. I've uh, watched some of your uh, videos and I listened to your podcast and, the, and I've been reading your book. It's fascinating, and it's something that I've always wondered about, imagination. I think everybody wonders about it when they stop to think about it, because it's something that we all take uh, take for granted most of the time. Please define imagination, if you would. Yeah, uh, imagination um, is the creation of a situation in your mind uh, from memories. So that, that's the broadest one. But if you get any more specific, you start excluding things that shouldn't be. <laughs> well, when you say um, that's that's a big part of what you've said that that surprises me. Uh, I don't I don't normally think of memory as a form of imagination, but you actually say it is the root of all imagination and you can't have imagination without memory. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. If you think about, um, you know, the experiences in your head they are either coming from outside the world or inside your head. And there's not really much else that's left. <laughs> and if it's coming from inside your head, which is usually the way we think about imagination, if you look at a house, you experience a house, and it's kind of, you know, it's coming from the outside and it's getting interpreted and you experience it. But if you imagine a house, then it's got to come from somewhere. And that, that somewhere is memory. So very broadly speaking, uh, all imagination is based on uh, reconstituted memories. Maybe they're rearranged or reshuffled. Um, but yeah, it's the fuel of imagination is memory. So if I try to, uh, if I try to, uh, write a screenplay or, or a book mm -hmm. about a, uh, about a, an alien world, right. something, something I've never seen and something I can't possibly remember, um, how am I doing that with related to what you just said? Okay, so if you're trying to imagine a uh, alien world, for example, uh, and you're trying to say write a screenplay, at the very basis, every single word in that screenplay comes from your memory. 
I mean, that's obvious, right? Yeah, <laughs> you learn yeah, those words yeah. at some point in your life. And then, you know, if you think about the, um, the, the idea of a planet, the idea of a civilization, what, what those aliens, their bodies look like, all of these are made perhaps through analogy, but certainly they are reconstituted from your memories. You learned about what planets are. The very concept of aliens is something you had to learn at some point, okay? So, you know, all, of, and then when I'm talking about memory, a lot of people think of what's called episodic memory, which is like things that happen to you, but I'm talking much more broadly. Your knowledge that whales are mammals is not a episodic memory. That's a semantic memory. It's like a meaning kind of memory. You don't, you might not remember where you learned it, just something you generally know about the world. And okay. those are also very important for imagination. So when you think about an alien and you start reasoning about how it's got to eat and how it's got to reproduce, all of that knowledge of how life works that you would then use to create an alien civilization or race or something like that is based on what you know about living things, which is stored in your memory. Here's something that I've, uh, I've wondered about a lot. Is it possible to imagine something that does not exist? Or uh, here, here's my example that I've asked a number of people. Is it try to imagine a brand new color, not not a combination of color, not, not various shades of existing colors, something totally new. I can't do that. I can't think of a brand new, a, a sound. I cannot imagine an aroma that doesn't relate to something that I already know. Is that right? Well, I think that the answer is that you can't generate it in imagery. But let's, let's break this down a little bit. So if I ask you to imagine a four-sided triangle, yes. in, in one sense, you can imagine it. It's a triangle and it has four sides, but you can't picture it because if you picture it, it's either not a triangle or it, it has four sides. So the conceptual idea, there's a conceptual imagination, which isn't like, um, it's, just, it's just sort of abstract. It doesn't have to do with like a, a picture in your head or a sound in your head or a smell in your head. It's just kind of a conceptual idea. That's one thing. And then you have what's called mental imagery, which is a sensory-like experience. So I would say that, uh, well, let's say a color, you want to imagine a color that you've never seen before. Well, I can imagine ultra, an ultraviolet color I've never seen before. In some well, but you just, you just named it ultraviolet, which is from memory, right? Yes, it is. But let's just say that is, uh, I come up with some wavelength uh, and I, I specify that wavelength to or the frequency or whatever to a decimal degree that's never been defined before. So that's a color of ultraviolet that's never existed, that's never been in my memory before, right? Uh, and I can't picture ultraviolet because my, I can't sense ultraviolet, but I can conceptually imagine it. So that's a, it, it's a nuanced answer, right? I think that you can conceptually imagine things that you've never seen before. They're all reconstitutions of memory, okay? Mm -hmm. People think of new things all the time but they are put together with pieces like Legos uh, from memory. How does, uh, how does imagination serve us? What would we be without it, if anything? Imagination is one of those things that people trot out as being a, a defining feature of humanity. Uh, it, it's uh, the, whether or not other creatures can imagine is controversial. I think a lot of us assume that mammals can dream and stuff but you know we, we're not we're not exactly sure um but certainly imagination is 
extremely useful to us as a species. I'll give you, I think it's helpful to think about what we might be like if we didn't have it. Okay, so um, let's just say uh, you know that an area is dangerous for your feet and you need to go there um, uh, and you want, you're going to be carrying something heavy. What you could do is you can imagine walking across it with a heavy thing in your hands and think that's going to be very hard on my feet. Maybe I should bring something lighter or wear protective things on my feet or something like that. Using your imagination allows you to simulate a possible future and it, it helps you make plans. If you didn't have that, you'd just be kind of moving with trial and error and you'd just do something and it would hurt and you would stop and you would learn not to do that anymore. But with imagination, you can artificial, you could sort of uh, do a virtual reality and think about what things would be like. This is one of the, um, one of the ways we know if when early cultures had imagination is based on, did they build things that required materials from several different locations? So the idea is that if a, if, if a people created a object like a temple or something, and they needed bricks from this area and shells from this area, whatever, the idea is that they probably had to keep the plan in, in their mind. They had to have that in their imagination and hold it there and remember it to be able to have it all come together, okay, rather than just reacting to the, the environment piece by piece. So the ability to imagine things allows us to make inventions. It allows us to simulate the future. It allows us to uh, think about how things might have been and learn from the past. So it's extremely powerful. But we still always have to have memory as the building blocks for the things we're going to imagine in the future. If I've got you yeah, correct. That's right. Yeah. Very interesting. I was listening. Uh, I was on my way home from work this morning. I was listening to you in a podcast you did with the BBC. I think you were talking about dreams and daydreams and hallucinations and all that stuff. Maybe you can go back over that area. Yeah. Um, so daydreaming is a, uh, a kind of imagination and um, daydreaming sometimes gets a bad rap. People think that you're, you know, you should be you're being lazy. Uh, you should be, you should be productive and doing what you're doing. And we think of students daydreaming when they're supposed to be studying. Uh, and then there's a whole mindfulness movement that says that basically you shouldn't daydream at all. But in fact, um, daydreaming seems to have some uses. Daydreaming happens when you are engaged in a task that is not particularly demanding of your cognitive abilities. So you're washing the dishes or taking a walk. And when, you're, when you detect that you're in this kind of a state, uh, a particular part of the brain called the default mode network gets activated and you daydream. And sometimes it's fantasizing. That's what we usually think of, like the, the kid who fantasizes about surfing instead of being in school. But also people reflect on their longer term goals. And this is something that's really valuable. You know, we, we, go, we go to work and we do our day-to-day -day things and it's really easy to just slip into the habits that we've always had. And daydreaming allows us to sit back and think, am I in the right career? Um, am I doing, am I taking care of this friendship that I haven't nurtured in a while? And you reflect on some of your more core values. And it allows you to sort of refocus and reorient, have a course correction, set new goals and this kind of thing. Um, so this seems to be one of the values of daydreaming and the default mode network. Um, I mean, of course, uh, imagination is also the fuel of anxiety. So we can talk about that too. 
but uh, you know, without without imagination, you won't, you wouldn't be anxious either. Um, but th but this is sort of its, its function is like you can um, uh, reorient your goals and that kind of thing. Wow, I talk a lot about uh, with people about uh, the time when I went out really for the first time in my life, and I was thirty years old and newly divorced, and I had to go on vacation, and I wanted to get away from it all and. I'd never done this before in my in 30 years. I'd never lived. I've never slept under a roof without other people there. And so I went off to the ocean in Northern California and it was very, very difficult for me without having somebody to talk to and always some sort of thing going on. And at some point it occurred to me, I, I started hearing a little voice in my head and it was me. And I never really thought about that before. And I found uh, by listening that I, I, I you know, I kind of like me. And, and, and that, I suppose, was a daydream, but it was very valuable. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about with daydreams, ordering your own mind somehow? That, that very well might be an example of daydreaming. I think that the, the self-chatter that's going on in people's heads is uh, also a really important thing to understand and talk about. I will say that if you actually like your inner voice, you're quite lucky. I think many of your listeners, they have an inner voice that is uh, kind of a jerk and um, giving them, <laughs> you know, like you, you're a loser, you, you know, you're stupid. I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people whose, whose inner chatter is quite negative. And, um, and that is part of the reason that they're constantly chasing busyness. Really? And activity. And, com and, and company because they don't want to be alone with their thoughts. Uh, and, and when people go on, you know, meditation retreats where they meditate for three hours and they've never just sat alone with their thoughts awake for, for that long, it can be very stressful in the beginning because of their, the negative chatter in their voice. But th this is, this is um, separate from voices in the head. So that's another thing we could talk about. That's in hallucination, but there's a, there's a pathological version of this where you, uh, this isn't where I'm just talking about normal day-to-day -day, uh, chatter. And people also differ a lot on this. I, for example, have almost no inner voice. My thoughts that come to my head are abstract imagery. They're rarely in terms of words. So if I think I want popcorn, I, the word popcorn does not appear in my head. Really? No. <laughs> it's just, uh, oh, you know, I'm just thinking about it. And, it, and you, it, just, the, you, you just said the word and I got, I could smell it and I can taste it. It came to me without <laughs> any effort whatsoever. Yeah, that's, that another, that's, that's another interesting aspect of imagination is usually voluntary, but not always, right? So um, uh, the voluntariness of your imagination is something that varies a lot too. So some people just sort of can't help but imagine things when they hear a description, for example. Uh, others need a little encouragement, you know. So that's another interesting. Aspect. I'm sorry, I, I interrupted your uh, your your uh, analogy with the popcorn. Uh, that was just to say that people differ a lot in how much their thoughts are in terms of words. So many, some people, like most of their thoughts, feel very, very much uh, in sentences and words and that kind of thing. And other people, like me, are uh, it's it's not in words. It's in other other things like just abstract concepts or in you know images or that kind of thing. How about dreams? Are they, uh, is that imagination or is it uh, some other neurological function that's going on while we're sleeping? It certainly uses a lot of the same brain machinery that imagination does. And, um, 
you know, you are generating situations from memories. So dreams also all come from memories, of course. Um, but most people, most people, when they talk about it, they don't include dreams as imagination. But because of the way I defined it, I have a whole chapter on dreams in my book, and I'm happy to talk about them. But whether or not they're actually imagination is not really answerable. It's sort of how you define it. Um, but you know, you're, when you dream, you are pulling things from memory and rearranging them and turning them into narratives. And uh, there are several theories of why we do this. Uh, we're not really sure. Um, but it is a really fascinating aspect of human experience. I'm surprised. I, I always so closely connected imagination with creativity. I think of uh, children imagining, having imaginary friends and, and playing games and, and creating little worlds in which they live. Or in, in my case, and your case, by the way, I was going to come back to uh, more about you. Not only do you do all this science stuff, but you've written several books, science fiction stories. You're a playwright a poet, a game developer, a professional painter. <laughs> you, you also, uh, you're, you're in the Calligraphy Society of Ottawa and you're a swing dancer. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, to, I'm trying, first of all, how do, I, how do you do this? How do you find the time to do all this stuff? That's a great question. And this relates to my book, uh, being the person your dog thinks you are, which is about productivity. But one of the, what, I don't have more time in the day than everybody else. No. I, um, I only sleep seven and a half hours a day. Not a lot, not a little. Um, a couple of things I have going for me is that I have a lot of energy. So not everybody has as much energy as I do. Um, but also I don't, uh, I, I find creative outlets relaxing. So where some people might, watch TV or sit around in bars with their friends. Uh, I would rather write a play or um, design a game or something like that. And I find that very rejuvenating and rewarding. So for, to, so to me, that artistic productivity is, a, is actually a form of relaxation after I've done a hard day of work on science. And your work is so academic and uh, scientific. It's, it's kind of a departure, isn't it? To do these things that are, that are artistic. Well, not if you study imagination, it's not. <laughs> oh, I guess. So, so you know, I, I um, so let's talk about imagination and creativity, <clears throat> because in English, we often conflate the two terms, but um, right. I think it's useful to distinguish them. Imagination, as I said, is the creation in your head of uh, some situation. Now, it can be, now that need not be creative. So if I say, you know, picture your living room, you're not necessarily populating it with clowns and aliens and stuff or changing the colors. You just might be trying to make an image of your living room as accurately as possible, drawing from your memory and trying to make it right. That's imagination. That's why we say imagine your living room. It's not creativity. On the other hand, if I were to say, imagine um, what your living room would be like underwater, then you're using imagination and creativity, right? So what you do is like, okay, well, what, if it were underwater, what things would be kind of, you know, buoyant and uh, what things would float to the top and what things might be just, what things would sink. And you're using your memories and knowledge of how the world works to come up with a realistic image. And that would be a creative process. So not all imagination is creative, but at the same time, not all creativity uses imagination. And so the analogy I like to use is uh, improvisation. So improvisation is the creation of art 
on the fly. So you might have musical improvisation as a jazz band. They might have a jazz solo. They didn't plan that ahead of time. They didn't even plan it three seconds ahead of time. It's sort of coming out second by second. We have um, uh, improvisation in the theater. So I did the, uh, improv for 20 years and you make a scene and they teach you when they train you how to do it, not to plan ahead. Don't have an agenda because that agenda will take up valuable slots in your working memory. This is my cognitive science <laughs> description of why it works. And you're not gonna be paying attention to what's going on in the scene. And you need to be thinking about what does the scene need? What do I need to do right now, given the situation? Um, freestyle rappers will rap off the cuff and not plan anything more than like a split second ahead of time. So here we have examples of creativity without imagination. If we compare that to Mozart, who famously created entire symphonies in his head before he wrote down anything, that is a monstrous work of imagination. He kept in his mind the entire thing before he produced anything in the real world. So what we have here are different creative outlets and creative products, some of which use a lot of imagination, some of which use virtually no imagination, and most things are in between. So that's, um, that's why I like to, to distinguish it a bit. It, the, the amount of imagination used in a creative act is dependent on how much you are keeping the artistic work in your head before and during its creation. Wow, that's really interesting because, like you, um, I I am a I'm a uh, an internationally produced playwright, and it's I have <laughs> to I have to imagine not the whole story, not everything in between, but I have to know the beginning, and I have to have a good idea of how it's going to end, and I can create the I can create the dialogue, I suppose, without using my imagination. But I still, in order to get from point A to point B, it seems to me I have to use imagination. And maybe I am conflating the two. Maybe I'm just still confused about it. Well, um, uh, so when I write dialogue, be it in a play or a novel or something like that, sometimes I will write it as I think it. Yeah. For the first draft, of course, you know. But other times I'll sit back and I'll just think, okay, how, what are the beats here? How, how is this conversation going to go? Yeah. What are the different characters? What are their motivations? What can they say? Go back and forth. And I will plan it out, maybe totally in my head, maybe a little bit on paper. So even in writing dialogue, um, I, for me, I, it sometimes feels more like improv and sometimes it feels more like yeah, planning, yeah, yeah. depending on the difficulty of what I'm doing. In my, in my experience, when you, get, when you really get in the zone and you're writing dialogue, it's, you're just the typist at that point. The characters are doing the speaking for you. And I guess from what you've explained at that point, that's, that's almost purely creative and not imaginative. Is that right? Uh, no. No? <laughs> um, so I just wrote a paper. I just published a paper about uh, this um, phenomenon where writers sometimes feel that their characters take on a life of their own. And, they, oh, really? and you're sort of dictating what they say. Yeah. Um, uh, I call it autonomy um, and wh whether or not imagine, I wrote a whole paper on whether imagine, when imagined persons are autonomous and not. So uh -huh. childhood imaginary friends are autonomous. Um, sometimes uh, characters, but usually only the main characters. Mm -hmm. And in, in novelists, it's after about 20,000 or 50,000 words, 
the main characters start becoming autonomous, but the little, the, the minor characters are not. Uh, but the reason I think it's different from the imagination distinction is that um, it, whether it's imagination or not depends on whether you are you are sort of uh, experiencing the dialogue in your head before you write it down, or is it, or is it coming out as it's coming to you? So um, I forget the author, but whoever wrote The Color Purple, Walker, Alice Walker? Yes. Um, her autonomy for her main characters was so intense that while she wasn't writing, she would have long dialogues and oh. conversations with her char main characters, them telling her what should happen and what they would do. Uh, and this was all in her mind. It wasn't on paper. So, wow. so that was a huge act of imagination because the, the entire dialogue is in her head, but the characters were autonomous. Here's something else I just realized when I write dialogue, uh, when, I, when I create characters, I do tend to use people I've known in real life as models in terms of the way they talk, their speech patterns, uh, their pacing, their, their punchlines, and all of that sort of thing. I, if I know a person well enough, I can hear how that person would, would say something. So I've got, I don't have every, everybody in the play sounding alike, you know, talking alike. So I guess in that case, I'm using Im imagination to relate by memory to the people I know and then turning it into a creative endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and people do that too. Like we, um, we just ran an experiment. We haven't published it yet, but we ran an experiment where we just asked people to imagine a beach scene or imagine a scene of whatever and describe what is in your imagination. And a high percentage of them simply recall a beach that they know or a room that they know. And, yeah. you know, if you're creating a character, you can, at least at the beginning, base it on someone you know or the way they talk or the way they look. So, so this is why the distinction between a memory retrieval and an imagination is a little bit blurry because all imagination is based on memory. It just depends on how much you're mixing and matching different elements. Uh -huh. So imagine it, it looks like Monica Bellucci, but it talks like Winona Ryder, you know, and it uh, has the personality of your sister, you know, <laughs> you have a new character, but it's, you know, it's a conglomeration. It's a, it's a mix and match. We're more likely to call that imagination. Whereas if you're just imagining what Monica Bellucci was like in the Matrix Reloaded, then you are what we, we call it a memory retrieval, but really um, all of it is bringing a situation to mind from memory. Okay, we're, I, guess, I guess I'm kind of getting this in the weeds, but it's interesting to me. So can, can imagination be exercised or should it? Well, you, it, can, it certainly can be. Um, the, uh, the question of whether it's, okay, there, there are a couple of things. That, does it get better with practice is one question. And should you do it is another question. So as I, uh, let's, what did we talk about first? So let's talk about, does it get better with practice? So I think that imagination gets better with practice, but only conceptual imagination. What I mean by that is um, if you put yourself in, well, let's say creativity, I guess, imaginative creativity. Uh, I had a friend who was a director who would, um, just as exercises, she would sit there and just think of songs she liked and imagine what music video she would make for it. And she would sort of edit the whole thing in her head and come up with it. And uh, somebody else might just listen to the song, just enjoy the song for what it is without using their imagination at all. Uh, and that was how she kept her mind sharp and in practice for design work. So she's practicing designing. It's all in her head, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, that, that I think you get better with practice. As you get into a creative mode, a creative mindset, the more you do it, the easier it is to slip into it. You come up with ideas that you can harvest later. Mental imagery, on the other hand, I have not seen any evidence that you can get better at it. So mental imagery is the picturing of things in your head or it's sensory like. So it might be um, hearing a song in your head or something like that. And its vividness declines with age. And I have not seen any evidence that practice makes it better. So okay. uh, it can't, it gets, it declines over age. And I don't, I don't see any way out of that, unfortunately. Now, should you do it? Now, this is very controversial because uh, it's one of my uh, <laughs> Uh, problems with the mindfulness movement is that mindfulness, the idea of it is completely anti-imagination in all its forms. If you are imagining something, you are not in the present moment, according to uh, my understanding of mindfulness, right? So there, there are people who say, don't imagine uh, the past, the future, engage in visualization. You should be focused on what you're doing and what's in front of you right now, your, the way your body is right now, what is in your immediate environment, and find joy and uh, there. So that tradition would encourage you not to engage in imagination. Now, I don't endorse that. I think there's some good evidence in at least a couple of cases where imagination makes you happier. So for example, um, the mindfulness people say you shouldn't think about the future. But there is a study that showed that if somebody's gonna go on vacation, um, let's say uh, I say, hey, congratulations, you just won a trip and you're leaving today. You'd be great and you go and you have a great time. You would be overall have more happiness if I said to you, hey, you want a trip, you leave in a week. And then you had a week to get excited. So it turns yeah. out that all of that time anticipating, getting excited is um, makes you overall happier than if you sprung on you. So uh, there's sure. a little, this means there's a little bit of evidence that planned parties are better than surprise parties because um, you get to anticipate it more. So this is one example, but um, I, I think that imagination is a, it can be a beautiful, wonderful thing. It can be abused and, and it can be the source of anxiety and it can exacerbate depression um, and anger. But I also think that correctly used, it can, it can make your life better. So that's my answer to whether you should. Yeah, it's, well, it sounds like what you're saying is how about just being human and go with go with the flow, go, go with what you need or what you're doing at the time. Absolutely right. There's uh, you know there's much to be said about as people are always saying these days, just live in the moment. Uh, you know, smell, stop and smell the roses and all that kind of thing. And at the same time, it was a great analogy. If I'm going to go on vacation, I really want to have time to get excited about. It. And think about what I'm going to do and what I'm going to take with me and and all of that stuff. Yeah, and I'll tell you another another example. Um, uh, sometimes I have nothing to do, and like maybe I'm on a bus for two hours in the dark, and I don't have anything to listen to or whatever. I'm just sitting there. I don't know. I've know. looked at your resume. I don't see that that's possible. Do you ever have <laughs> nothing to do? I was at a wedding in Jamaica. And um, we went to Negril, and then the bus back was at night. I was sitting alone. It was pit, almost pitch black. I didn't have a book. And I just had two hours to sit there and look out the window at pure darkness. And at those times, I find imagination is, is wonderful. So I'll maybe yeah. I'll recreate uh, a, a movie in my head. Or I have a, um, I made a memory palace. We can talk about what that is if you want. But of walking around my uh, 
this island that my parents own and I have imagery I've placed there to help me remember all the lyrics to Paul Simon's Graceland, which is my favorite album. So what I can do <laughs> at any moment with my own thoughts is virtually experience a beautiful island and basically play an entire hour long album in my head and be perfectly happy and entertained all using my imagination. I, I have not seen a convincing argument that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I, I am exactly the same way. In fact, um, I've told, I've told my wife before we got married, we've been married for 34 years. And I said, there's one thing you need to understand is I spend a lot of time inside my head. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I'm not paying attention to you. It doesn't mean I don't care about what you're talking about or where we're going to go or what we're going to do and so forth and so on. But I really, I really like to just spend a lot of time living there. And I think there's a lot of people that really don't ever take the time to learn how to do that. And I think it's very, at least for me, you know, it is, it's, uh, it's powerful in terms of kind of keeping myself grounded and so forth. You have thoughts about that or is that just, you know, an individual thing? I, I really, as a scientist, I can't really speak to that. Um, it might be that some people are naturally better at it and those people find benefit in it and other people are not so good at it. It might be that some people benefit more from more mindfulness. My only point is that I don't think that, I think mindfulness is a great tool and should be used more, but isn't necessarily something that you should be using all the time. And right. I think it's probably worth it for some people to have sort of in their toolbox some things that they can regularly imagine that will bring them pleasure or some other benefit. And that's, that's fine to do. What is this business about teaching computers to imagine? Yeah, well, you're asking at a great time because in the last five months, there have been quite breathtaking advances in artificial imagination. If we look at Dolly 2 and uh, Mid Journey and all these, have you seen these programs? Hmm? I'm sorry, what was the question? Have you seen these programs like Mid Journey no. and Dolly 2? Oh, well. No. So in the last four months, there have been uh, a handful of artificial intelligence um, programs that you type in a what's called a text prompt, like uh, an eagle made of popcorn sitting on a mountain, and it will generate sometimes a painting, sometimes a photorealistic image that looks amazing, right? Uh, wow. So... This is artificial imagination, right? So it's got a memory basically of the millions and millions of photos that it's seen and uh, knows what's in them. And when you type in this prompt, just like I could say to you, imagine your living room underwater, you can type into these things, a living room underwater, and it will create an image that's pretty good. So from the, from the pure artificial intelligence perspective, uh, we already have some incredibly good artificial imagination. What I do in my lab is more artificial imagination that is trying to do it the same way people do. These AI programs that I've mentioned, their goal is not to simulate the human mind. Their goal is to just create the right or create an interesting output, which is fine. But I'm, the work I do is more like um, we're trying to simulate the human mind so we can understand it. So we make theories about how the mind works, how imagination works, and then we implement it on a, in software, and then we see if it behaves like people do. So, yeah, it's so it. We've already got artificial imagination. It's already here, and um, you know, and uh, I'm very excited about it. Sounds like you're the guy that's uh, that's creating the uh, computers that are going to the robots that are going to take over the world, right? They're gonna they're gonna figure out how to how to uh, protect themselves from us 
And uh, uh, I would be know, happy to have an entire other episode of your uh, show about that because <laughs> I think really? like, that is a very a very concerning problem, and I am probably contributing something to it. Um, but uh, that that we could talk. I could talk to you for an hour about the artificial intelligence ethics and all that stuff. Well, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll do a little bit of you know educate myself a little bit, and uh, we could do that. Um, all right, let me just ask you what what's the final question here um, for me, and that's the overall the broad question that maybe I should have asked at the beginning, but I didn't want to uh, assume anything. So, uh, what is uh, how? Do, no, I'm sorry. How does imagination work? What is going on in our brains? I've got this this lump of soggy tissue, uh, sort of gelatinous thing. How does it work? Oh, it, from the brain perspective, we really don't know. So, uh, we, you know, um, unfortunately, the level of analysis that we can do with brain imaging and that kind of stuff is not great enough, combined with the fact that it's a rel relatively understudied phenomenon we really don't know how the brain does it, okay? So mm -hmm. we have some ideas about how the mind does it, but not the brain. And, and if that's confusing to you, the difference, um, it's kind of like um, the story, there's a story that's independent of the words it's written in, right? So the brain is like the hardware and how it, how it implements a higher level information processing thing. So for example, we might know that, um, if you ask someone, if I say um, uh, I was uh, on my bike and a car stopped in front of me and I had to hit the brakes really hard. If you can picture that, um, there's a lot that I didn't tell you that you're bringing to it. So for example, you're probably picturing it right side up and not from the side or upside down. You're probably, oh, yeah. you're probably um, not picturing it on Mars. Uh, you are probably, imagining that I have clothes on and not naked, like where is all this coming from? So the idea is that we can, we can have some understanding of how the mind will put objects in certain places with certain orientations and sizes. We can study that and understand it, object selection, object placement, all that without, without understanding at all anything about neurons or brain areas or anything like that. That's like a, uh, that's like a, a, a lower level of analysis. And unfortunately, <clears throat> uh, there's not a whole lot of neuroscience work on that. So I, I, we really can't say anything right now about how the brain decides what objects to put in an imagined scene, for example. We just don't know. Okay. I guess that's just going to be the answer for now. Yeah. If anybody knew, if anybody knew you'd know it. You, you, you've done so much research and so much. Uh, where did this fascination come to you how did you how did you get this my interest in cognitive science came from uh my uh the chair of my the philosophy department at state university of new york at oswego i was in my fourth year of philosophy and i didn't i didn't know what i wanted to do and uh the chair asked me have you ever heard of cognitive science and he lent me a book and i read the book and I was like okay that's my future and i started working to, really? toward that from there um imagination uh, came to me because in my graduate in graduate school I was studying visual analogy. So that's how do people solve one problem by making a visual analogy with another problem. So 
you use somebody's, if you go to somebody's house and use their microwave, you might never have seen that microwave before. You might use your knowledge of what previous microwaves you've used, what they look like to say, okay, well, maybe this is a round dial. Maybe this is the time or, you know, uh, maybe it's the intensity if it's a clicker thing. Uh, I studied that. And when I would give talks, people would say, well, where do these visual imaginations come from? I said, nobody knows. So when I became a professor, you're supposed to kind of do something similar, but different to what you did in grad school. And so I thought I'm going to tackle imagination. So that's how I got started on it. And it's just a nice dovetail because as you mentioned, I do have a rich artistic life. And um, I was learning a lot of things in play directing and, you know, kind of folk wisdom about how to make good art, how to make good composition, how to do this, how to do that. And, you know, they're not the fine art world. They're not scientists. And, and they just sort of have these folk, these bits of folk wisdom about what works and what doesn't. Uh, and so I was all excited to maybe get into and contribute to a scientific understanding of what makes good art. And a lot of that resulted in my first book, Riveted, which is about why we find things interesting and compelling and uh, the, the science behind that. So that's how I got into it. I was going to just ask you finally about the, uh, about the science of imagination laboratory that you have established there at, yeah. uh, at Carleton. What do you do there? Well, I have a grad student and undergrad researchers. So I'm a professor, which means that um, about half my time is taking it up, uh, is dedicated to teaching, and the other half is more or less dedicated to doing research. So writing these books and writing papers. And to do that, I have a laboratory and I have graduate students. I have master's students and PhD students, uh, and they have their own projects and I mentor them and train them to be scientists. And in the process, they create scientific uh, output. And I also have undergrads that work with me. So the lab uh, is called the Science of Imagination Laboratory. In truth, um, people are doing all kinds of projects, but I try to keep it focused on imagination as much as possible. And um, we meet every week and uh, I mentor them. And, you know, we, that's how a lot of my papers get written. Is they're actually written by my students with my guidance. Well, that explains how you find time for swing dancing and calligraphy. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, Jim, it's been great talking to you. I appreciate it very much. That was a pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. Okay, and I think I mentioned uh, the the name of you do a podcast, and it's called uh, Minding the, the brain. brain. Minding the brain. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, we just found all right. top one point five percent of all podcasts in the world, which we're very excited about. Is that right? Yeah, well, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Again, your latest book is called Imagination: The Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. Boys and girls, his name is Jim Davies. Look him up. And uh, Jim, thank you so much. Thank you, Dave.